We can move beyond polarization and division that has polluted our lives. We can hold on to our convictions while still accepting, respecting, and even loving each other. And surprisingly, the church was created to be the answer to all of this. And this isn't some bait and switch to get you to go to more church services. And this isn't some wishful and naive thinking. It can happen now, but it requires us to reimagine church with patience, trust, and courage. So let's talk about it together. Every day, we are told that we need to be outraged because that person said or did that thing that makes them a terrible person and somebody who's trying to destroy our world. And if you're not against them, well then, you're against us. And if you're not as outraged as us, well then either you're not paying attention or you're a mindless sheep or you're just weak. You know what? It's exhausting. It's exhausting trying to always be outraged at the right thing and, and always trying to find the, the next thing we're supposed to be outraged about every day. And sadly, the church, instead of being a beacon of peace and reconciliation, finds itself contributing to the very divisions it should be healing. Instead of reconciling our divisions, the church adds to them. But listen, we don't have to give in to the division. We don't have to play along with the either-or game. Jesus came to bring us something better. He created the church, the, the ecclesia, the community of Jesus followers, to be, to be a new way of living, to be a, an alternative, to be a different kingdom. And we can be what this world desperately needs right now. We can reclaim our identity as agents of, of peace and love and unity in a fractured world. The solution to a divided world is a united church. Let me take you back about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, AD 57, to a church that was as divided as the culture it found itself in. See, during that 25 years, a church, a group of Jesus followers, an ecclesia, had grown in the city of Rome. It was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish Jesus followers. But sometime in the 40s, Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, including the Jesus-following Jews. And when those Jews were allowed to come back into the city about five years later, the Jesus-following Jews found a church that was very much non-Jewish in its customs and its practice. And tensions soon arose. See, many of the returning Jews said, hey, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He's our Jewish Messiah, which means following him means keeping the Jewish laws, like observing Sabbath, eating kosher, getting circumcised. And you Gentiles, you're just following some hippy-dippy, easy-going love stuff. Like, you're morally weak. You're not living up to the righteous demands that God makes of us. In fact, you're probably, you're being soft on sin. And the Gentiles said, yeah, uh, no, thanks. Like, we've been following Jesus just fine without all of that. In fact, you know what? You guys are the weak ones. You're weak-minded. Your faith is weak because you're stuck in the past. You're not actually trusting Jesus. You're trusting all these rules to make God happy with you. See, the reality was the people who truly loved and followed Jesus were disagreeing on what was morally acceptable for a Jesus follower. It is possible for people who truly love Jesus to disagree on what it looks like to follow him. So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this very divided church. We call it the Book of Romans. And in this, he provides a way forward for this ancient church and a way for us to navigate our differences now. Now, to be honest, this is probably one of the more difficult messages for me to give because most of us aren't going to like the answer. And in fact, more people have left our church, Cross Creek, over what I'm about to tell you than probably any other reason. So 
Buckle up. Here we go. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Okay, so probably first we should figure out who's weak and who's strong. And isn't it funny how when we read don't argue with believers who are weak, we're like, well, so if I'm putting myself in the shoes, I'm thinking about other believers because they're weak. We always think we're the, the strong ones, the strong ones in the faith. And those whom we disagree are are weak in their in their mind or their faith or their morals. Well, in this case where Paul's writing, he's referring to the weak as the, the minority group, the Jews that had come back in. They were, they were the minority, and they were kind of the re- returning conservative Jews holding on to old beliefs. That would mean the strong were the majority, the Gentile Jesus followers, embracing a new way of being the people of God. And so what does Paul tell us to do with people we consider weak in faith? Well, <laughs> argue with them, like get them to change their minds so they can be strong, right? And maybe, you know, well, they believe differently, so we'll talk behind their backs and we'll make sure everyone's on our side so they kind of see the error of their ways. And if they don't, well then, we'll either kick them out of the church or we'll leave them for another church. Nope. What does Paul actually say? He says, accept them. Acceptance is the key to unity. Okay, so you mean accepting, like uh, getting along with people who see things a, a little differently. Right? Like maybe they, they drink alcohol, but I don't. I kind of feel like it's you know, not my thing, maybe a little iffy. So I don't drink, but, but it's cool. Like we, we can agree to disagree on this. Or maybe they're more conservative than me or more liberal than me, but you know, we get along on the main stuff. Nothing too major, right? Like, nothing major like what God views as morally right and wrong, right? But Paul says, no, I'm talking about what you think are major, huge issues. He says, don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. That's huge. He's not just talking about preferences or minor issues. He's talking about like what people see as moral and immoral, what's right and wrong to do as a Jesus follower, what it actually means to daily follow Jesus. See, we like the idea of unity and and even acceptance until we're actually passionate about the issue. And then we can't imagine how any good person or at least any good Christian could think or believe such a thing. And when we have these types of huge differences, Paul says, accept each other and don't argue about it. So like you're saying, accept people we feel hold views that contradict God's views? Like, that's a lot, Paul. Like, do you... Maybe you could give us an example. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. And we think, oh, I thought you were talking about a huge deal. Like, so someone wants to be a vegetarian, big deal. Let them eat whatever they want. Now, most commentators actually agree there's a lot more going on here than just that. See, in a gen- mostly Gentile pagan city like Rome, it was near impossible to find meat that wasn't first sacrificed to and, and offered to an idol of some kind, or to find meat that was prepared properly kosher. So in the Jewish mind, to eat any meat in this city of of pagan butchers who have all these idols all around, they're running the risk of participating in idol worship, breaking the first two of the big Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make idols. And to break the kosher food laws was to break the law that God had given to Israel through Moses in the very beginning. And then in a couple sentences, Paul also adds, you know, brings up the idea that some people view some days as holy and other days as not, most likely referring to keeping the Sabbath, which was Ten Commandment number four, like keep the Sabbath, rooted all the way back to the creation of the world, like core God stuff for the Jews. 
Like these laws for the Jews, they were a huge, they are a huge part of what it means to be the people of God. Jews had faced death over observing and keeping these laws. So in the Jewish mind, if people are going to follow the Jewish Messiah and honor God, they obviously have to keep these laws of God that he gave to Moses so long ago. But the Gentiles were never given those laws. Jesus had brought, in their mind, Jesus had brought a new agreement for all people, not based on rules, but based on Jesus, pledging our allegiance to Jesus as our only king. And it's into this huge mess of conflicting, strongly held moral views that Paul says, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. He says, don't look down on. Another word would be, don't despise them. See, the strong here had a prideful disdain, a condescending judgment on people whom they considered to be hung up on old, outdated rules from the, from the past. And the weak, they did the same. See, they saw themselves as the righteous few holding the line for God and, and judging others for not being as godly as they were. And Paul tells both groups to stop judging and criticizing each other. Why? Well, because it's good to be nice or because these aren't really important conversations to have. No, because something else takes precedence. God has accepted them. As Pastor Ken Wilson says, we can accept each other without approving each other's moral standing on this or that issue. God does, or we couldn't be saved. So do you think God refuses to accept us until all our beliefs perfectly line up with his? Of course not. And they never will. But he accepts us anyway, and he loves us anyway. And as his people, we are to do the same. We can accept each other because God accepts each of us. Listen carefully. Whether or not we affirm each other's choices and, and beliefs should have no impact on whether or not we accept each other. In fact, when we say, I either affirm this or, I, or I, I'm not affirming of your behavior and who you choose to be, we're actually standing in judgment of someone else's morality and we're taking the place of God. We're saying, I have the right to judge whether you are moral or not. And Paul says, you better knock that stuff off right now because you are on very dangerous ground. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. It's not our role to judge someone else's service to God. God's the one who judges. And when he does, do you know what will happen? Paul says he will help them and they will stand and receive his approval. Why? Because Jesus has already saved them. Ultimately, what you choose to do is between you and God. He's the one we will all give an account to. And our responsibility is to ask, what does Jesus's love look like in our own lives? And sometimes God will give different answers to different individuals in their own specific situations. So we can't push our agendas and our views on others, forcing people to conform or leave and, and pushing them to do what they, they think is wrong and, or be who they're not. But this is hard. How can we actually do this? So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. The answer is gentleness. That's how we can do this, with gentleness, not pushing our own way, but allowing each other to work out God's will for our lives. 
Acceptance requires us to embrace others without pushing our own views on them. So people want to eat kosher? Great. You don't want to eat kosher? Fine. You, it's between you and God. I won't push my views on you, and you won't push your views on me. And I'm not going to flaunt my views in front of you like, mm, man, this is really good idol meat. Like you are totally missing out on this delicious meat that you're not allowed to eat. No, we will both follow what God puts on our hearts. Why? Because we both belong to him. And maybe you're thinking, and I, I, I get it, you're thinking, okay, but won't this lead to people like doing whatever the heck they want and just saying, well, you know, it's how I feel, so God says it's cool. Like, how do we actually have any moral standards as a community? And I get that. I, I've been there. But when we ask what's this question that seems very legitimate to ask, I think we're forgetting one important fact. And that is, the Holy Spirit of God lives within each Jesus follower. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, the kingdom of God is not about following the right rules. No, it's about living a life of goodness and peace and joy. How? In the Holy Spirit. So why would we judge, if the kingdom of God is not about following a list of rules, then why would we judge each other on which list of rules we follow or don't? If we are fully trusting the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and transform our hearts and our minds and our motives, then he will. We are not each other's Holy Spirit, so let him do his job and his time and his way. Unity requires us to trust that the Holy Spirit knows what he is doing. And what you think someone else maybe needs to work on might not be something he ever gets to working on with them because maybe there's more important things for them to work on than we know, and he already knows what that is. So if we're not doing, if we're not judging each other based on rules and all that, what are we doing instead? If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. See, instead of trying to decide who's in and out and whom we should approve of and affirm of or not, our goal should be harmony and building each other up, even if they disagree with us or not. We support and love and care for each other. And if we can get this right, then our divided world will notice. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. Nothing shows a divided world the reality of Jesus' love like a diverse but unified church. But instead, you know what we do? We pick our pet issues and use them as a litmus test to see if this person is a true or good or, or real Christian or not. And because it's, well, because some of these things aren't disputable, right? The Bible is very clear on some of these things. In fact, maybe this whole time you've been thinking about that one thing you think the Bible is very, very clear on. And yes, the biblical writings are clear on some things for sure. You know what? Many people would have told Paul, hey, the Bible is very clear that we need to observe the Sabbath and we need to eat kosher and we can't eat food, you know, sacrificed to idols. In fact, this would have been very incredibly controversial for Paul to even say that these things that he just talked about are disputable. So how do we actually decide what's disputable and what isn't? Is there like a way we can figure that out? And I think there is. Things would be disputable when first, they don't involve a matter of basic or core Christian belief. The, the truth that there is one God and three persons and Jesus as a member of that Trinity came to earth fully God, fully human and lived a perfect life of love and died to free us from sin and then rose again conquering sin and death and now he reigns as king. 
invites everyone everywhere to join his kingdom of love and peace now and forever. So if it contradicts that, then yeah, it's not disputable. Second, things are disputable when both sides can make reasonable appeals to scripture. Like, can we, can both sides of this issue say, hey, you know what? This verse seems to mean that, that agrees with me. And then the other side can say, hey, this verse seems to agree with my side. And there's, you know, room for debate there. It's disputable. And third, how do we know when things are disputable? When faithful, loving Jesus followers take different views on the issue. See, every issue we can think of, every hot topic right now that seems to divide us, has Jesus-loving biblical experts who have spent their lives studying the culture and the languages and the beliefs that created the biblical text on both sides, including the ones we've been told the Bible is very clear on, such as abortion or LGBTQ or evolution or gender roles or even the Israel-Palestinian conflict or even the nature of hell or whether there's an actual rapture or not. And if the world's best experts can still love each other but disagree, I think we can too. So, John, is there ever a time to actually draw a line and say, no, the Bible is clear, this is something we don't do? Of course, of course. Like, what's not disputable? Um, the fact that pride and greed and hypocrisy and judging, even, even adultery and, and abuse are wrong. They're always wrong. And the fact that, you know, what's also very clear is that we have an obligation to care for and protect the weak and the marginalized, and the poor. That to be a Jesus follower means forgiving our enemies and, and loving our neighbor. So at Cross Creek, what makes us a family isn't our shared view on this or that subject, even the ones we personally might see as the big ones. No, what makes us a family is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We can disagree and still be in the same family. Now, what does that mean and look like in every situation for every issue? You probably have some specific issues you're thinking of and you want to ask questions like, well, what does that look like for this and that? The best I can give you right now is that we're still talking about it. See, acceptance requires ongoing conversation, and we're willing to always have these ongoing conversations with each other. In fact, again, as Pastor Ken Wilson wrote, we can disagree on this question without separating from each other. We can hold our respective positions as firmly as our conscience dictates but we have chosen not to treat this matter as something we have to hold in common in order to share a true unity of the Spirit. So to practice this acceptance and, and really find true unity, here's my invitation. Let's read Romans chapter 14 all the way to chapter 15 verse 13 so because that's where all of this is coming from. So don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself, especially if what I've been saying feels a little uncomfortable. And then evaluate for yourself. Evaluate yourself. What issues have I put above unity? What issues have I said? No, this issue is way more important than being united with a fellow Jesus follower. And then ask, what conviction do I not understand? How can I, how can I better understand someone with that conviction? Like if there's something you say, I just can't believe how a good Christian could believe this. You know what that means? It means you haven't been asking questions and you haven't been listening to others. And then let's pray. And we pray something simple like this. Jesus, help me follow you even when it seems to contradict what I think is true. Imagine the freedom we would have to love each other if we freed ourselves from having to evaluate other people's choices. If we freed ourselves from the debates that have ensnared our world and our churches. If we didn't take on the moral authority to affirm or not affirm someone else's convictions, but we fiercely and boldly and courageously accepted each other the same way God accepts us. What would happen if our focus was true unity in the Holy Spirit instead of conformity to some group's chosen view? This is the unity our world desperately needs. 
And when the church is united, it can heal the divisions of the world. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Hey, thanks for watching and listening and, and checking us out, especially if it's your first time. If you liked what you saw, please click like and even subscribe so you don't miss another episode. We are a church in Salem, Oregon, and you can check us out at yourcrosscreek.com. And always, we love questions and comments and getting to know people, so please email us at info at yourcrosscreek.com. Until then, stay classy, Salem.